it was really a very sore spot for a lot of women. Um, why shouldn't women vote? You know, it seems incredible that we couldn't. August 2020 marks the centennial of the 19th Amendment. 100 years ago, on August 18, 1920, the 19th Amendment was ratified, giving women the right to vote, meaning for the first time in American history, women were able to have a say in the democratic process. The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. The list of activists and advocates in the women's suffrage movement is long with many monumental figures, but there's one critical suffragist who's often forgotten. Her tactics were seen as rebellious and aggressive. The newspapers at the time even called her actions militant. What they didn't know, that was fine by her, just as long as they were in the papers. Her underlying strategy was keep the issue alive. And that's exactly what she did by any means necessary. She was entirely sane, but also prepared to die a martyr. This is History's Forgotten Headlines, the rebel for women's rights. I'm Deborah Copps, um, and I've written uh, more than two dozen books for children and young adults, um, all of them so far nonfiction. And uh, my most recent one is Alice Paul and the Fight for Women's Rights. To celebrate the centennial, we decided to bring Alice Paul back into the headlines. And we start with her start in the women's suffrage movement, which began when she traveled to the UK in the early 1900s when she was 22 years old and met a group of women called the Suffragettes. Some of their tactics were quite confrontational, you know, disruptive. They disrupted uh, Parliament, Parliament's business, <laughs> and uh, disrupted meetings in London. Those actions were considered shocking at the time. And to this day, Parliament's website describes the suffragettes as, quote, determined to obtain the right to vote for women by any means and campaigned relentlessly and sometimes violently to achieve this aim. And all the while, Alice Paul was involved and in taking notes. When, so when Alice Paul came back from, um, from her time in England, I think it was about two and a half years, she felt that that militancy was in fact quite effective. It got a lot of attention. But in the United States, the suffrage movement was sleepy. The two mothers of women's suffrage, Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, were dead. And nothing much was happening. At the time, Alice Paul had just been appointed to a small congressional committee for the National American Woman Suffrage Association, better known as NASA. And she felt it was time to energize the movement. And that small group organized that big parade uh, in 1913 that people remembered in 2016. That's right. Before the Women's March in 2017, there was a Women's March in 1913. White House archives say it was a huge parade with more than 5,000 suffragists. 
marching down Pennsylvania Avenue. The parade took place the day before the inauguration of President-elect Woodrow Wilson. However, this one ended much differently. The one in, in 1913 descended into chaos that actually worked in their favor. There, you know, there were there was some kind of a rope, you know, to discourage people from getting in the street. You know, they blocked off the streets. But a lot of men just just crashed. <laughs> you know, they they started harassing them. And at one point, uh, at one point, one of the one of the marchers said, "Girls, get out your hat pins." Quick background here: at the time, hat pins could have been used for self-defense which is a solid gauge at how violent it got. More than 100 women were hospitalized. That led to even more news coverage, and Alice Paul did not let it go to waste. They started pursuing a strategy of holding the Democratic Party in power accountable for the fact that women could vote, and therefore opposing all Democratic candidates in the 1914 election. Oh, that was quite controversial. So controversial that it's around this time, NASA and Alice Paul began to split. NASA eventually had a newer leader, Terry Chapman Cat, and she really, really disliked Alice Paul. She felt that Alice Paul, you know, was not paying her dues to the older generation, that she was just too much of a rebel. Little did she know, Alice Paul was just getting started. She kept sending delegates to speak to Woodrow Wilson, who was getting pretty tired of them. <laughs> he just was quite dismissive. And, you know, one thing um, that Alice Paul understood was that Woodrow Wilson was really key. And if he didn't want to support them, what, it probably wasn't going to happen. And so they really focused a lot of attention on him. Um, And he said, you know, it's up to the party. If the party wants to support it, I'll support it. So he, you know, he just uh, passed the buck. And when she says it, she's talking about an amendment to the U.S. Constitution to give women the right to vote, which had become the focus for Alice Paul and her newly formed National Woman's Party. And the party, Women's Party, understood that uh, they needed his support. And if he was going to be dismissive, then they were going to be in his space. And that's when the picketing started. It was like, okay, we'll stand here and remind him as he leaves to play a round of golf that we're here demanding the vote. And that was something truly unheard of in 1917. But Alice Paul didn't care. She and more than a thousand others in the party were going to stand there nearly every day for as long as it took. The picketing began on January 10th. And at first it was was just quite peaceful, you know, Woodrow Wilson would wave at them. But then after a while, the picketers started to lose the headlines. The novelty got them a lot of coverage, but that novelty wore off. And as we've learned, Alice Paul wasn't going to let that happen. And then in April, we entered World War One, And understandably, everybody was more concerned about the progress of the war than about women's suffrage. So Paul was left fighting for the attention of America. But when President Wilson said the U.S. must enter the war to make the world safe for democracy, 
Paul capitalized. She thought it was ironic that Wilson wanted to fight for democracy abroad, while in his own country, only half of its citizens were allowed to take part in democracy. The banners they held up in front of the White House became increasingly provocative um, to get attention, to stay in the news and point out the contradiction. And the one that really got a lot of attention um, compared Woodrow Wilson to Kaiser, to the German Kaiser. It said, Kaiser Wilson, have you forgotten your sympathy with the poor Germans because they were not self-governed? 20 million American women are not self-governed. Take the beam out of your eye. And, and beam was a reference to a verse from the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that got a lot of people mad. I mean, it, it got them in the news. And, um, you know, onlookers were grabbing their banners, tearing them up jeering, um, and it continued, you know, and because it was so effective, they just kept doing it. It wasn't just the banners. The suffragists even started burning Wilson's speeches in an urn. So by the time June rolled around, President Wilson decided he'd seen enough. The chief of police, or whatever his title was, let Alice Paul know that it was not legal any longer and they would um, risk arrest. As you likely guessed, Alice Paul and the party didn't care, but the arrests and the attacks from angry bystanders started to pile up. This went on from July to October. And then, on October 20th, Alice Paul was arrested. That day, she went out to picket with a sign in hand. The time has come to conquer or submit. For us, there is but one decision. We have made it. And these are in quotes. And the person who said it was Woodrow Wilson. Paul was arrested along with many other women on the charge of obstructing traffic. They were sentenced to seven months at a workhouse. But then about two weeks later, Paul decided to make one of her most aggressive moves yet. Many of them... More than 20 went on hunger strikes, uh, led by Alice Paul. Faced with those hunger strikes, officials had no idea what they were up against. The thing about hunger strikes, she had gone on hunger strikes in the UK, too. And the thing about them is that it's kind of like your last weapon. You know, if if you're going to be held in jail, what, what can you do to get people's attention? Well, that's what she did. Uh... And eventually, they began force-feeding her. Not only was she repeatedly force-fed, but the Library of Congress notes that Paul was also transferred to the psychiatric ward of a jail in an effort to intimidate and discredit her. It didn't work. And terrible things also started to happen at the workhouse. Word got out that the woman in the workhouse had been really badly mistreated violently. And there was a lot of indignation. They were so badly treated one November night that it became known as the Night of Terror. The guards at the workhouse brutalized the suffragists. They even beat a woman named Lucy Burns, chained her hands to the cell bars above her head, then left her there for the night. Dora Lewis's head was smashed into an iron bed, and she lost consciousness. 
despite the attacks and despite the force feeding, they never gave up. Nobody wanted these women to die on them, and they were ready to die, especially Alice Small. She really was ready to die. Word of their suffering and torture quickly spread to suffragists on the outside and then to the papers. That's when not just their circumstances started to change, but also the future of America. It was very bad PR for Woodrow Wilson, and they got out very soon thereafter. All of them. All the women, including Paul, were released. President Wilson could no longer withstand the increasing public pressure of any of it. Less than two months later, President Wilson publicly declared his support for the woman suffrage amendment. That was huge. So Alice Paul and the Woman's Party got to work using their so-called rebel ways to lobby congressmen. They became known as sort of backdoor lobbyists because they would, you know, run alongside a senator as he was going from his office to another meeting to get his attention. They had card files on everybody in Congress with all sorts of funny things in them, like uh, what their mother thought of woman suffrage, where he went to get his hair cut. <laughs> it was pretty, where his wife went to get her hair cut. And they just found all sorts of ways to lobby. As for the more buttoned-up suffragists of NASA, that was the opposite of their approach. One congressman said to um, a prominent member of the National Women's Party, you were like sand in my eye. So annoying. You just wanted to get it out. And, and he said that it would have taken longer, years longer, if not for the very annoying <laughs> National Women's Party. You know what happens next. The House and Senate eventually passed the 19th Amendment in 1919, and then in 1920, on August 18th, the 19th Amendment was ratified and became law eight days later. That November, women voted for the first time in American history. So Alice Paul, as far as her biggest contribution to the women's uh-huh. rights movement, could be her ability to keep it in the headlines. That's right. I think that's right. And on people's minds. That's right. And then, you know, um, a lot of some of what she did was just ingenious. You know, it was, you know, she did it with a lot of wit and style, I would say. You know? We would be remiss to not acknowledge the other side of the coin to Alice Paul, NASA. They did phenomenal work to get the amendment passed and ratified, and they deserve an extraordinary amount of credit. And while they had their disagreements, just maybe, Alice Paul and NASA were perfect for each other and were actually a match made in activism. A women's historian, Nancy Cott, a really terrific historian, and I asked her once whether she thought Alice Paul's group was as important as NASA. And she said that she felt they complemented each other. Um, and, and I think that is often the case. Uh, that, you know, people <laughs> who are willing to go on hunger strikes or um, willing to go to jail 
um, make the people in the middle look better, you know? It makes it easier for whoever <laughs> negotiating with them to negotiate with the middle after, you know, pushing hard on the left. And we'll leave you with that. I'm Justin Dorney, and while the headlines may be forgotten, just don't forget about us.